from the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas. This is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. Our guest today is familiar throughout the blindness field for his work with humanware and for presentations he's given about his work and his upbringing filled with high expectations. Peter Tuchik is an original, and his perspective is always worthy of note. My name is Peter Tusik, and I am the Director of Strategic Partnerships for Humanware. I currently have kind of a tripartite role with Humanware. The first piece of what I do is work with our strategic partners, so consumer organizations, um, you know, more government-level organizations. So we think about the CNIB or the RNIB um, in Canada or in, Europe, in, in the UK, the Royal uh, Institute of the Blind, the, the Canadian National Institute of the Blind. And then also working with consumer organizations such as NFB or ACB, kind of serving as a liaison um, between ourselves here at Humanware and those institutional partners. So making sure we're kind of all on the same footing, uh, as well as working with NLS and, and other groups to be, a, you know, to make sure that a lot of our institutional deals and sort of um, products that we provide, um, that everything is in sync. The second part of what I do uh, is I work and I manage a team of product specialists. That is really where I started with Humanware. I was a product specialist I was for a number of years here. Basically, that comes down to providing educational trainings, primarily in K-12 education, as well as working with rehab agencies on our blindness products. Um, I manage two product specialists, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast, Joel and Rachel, who are phenomenal, and they will most likely be in a school near you at some point soon, if not at a booth or table near you when you attend a show. Um, Joel and Rachel and our sales team are fantastic, but you know we, we do a lot of in-person full-day workshops. We do a lot of half-day sort of hybrid workshops. We also provide conference presentations. So I, I do still some of that myself as well as manage the team. And then the third piece of what I do is work closely with product management on our blindness products. So that would be anything Braille and anything talking. So the Braille Note Touch Plus, uh, the Brilliant Braille displays, those are handled by Andrew Flatris, who is our blindness product manager. I work closely with him um, in kind of being the ears on the ground, if you will, here in North America. Andrew's based in the UK. But uh, working closely with him on you know, the UX and UI, so the product design, giving him ideas, um, helping him come to the team with, with solid um, sort of stories and user stories for what to do with products and, and development. And then also with our Victor Reader and GPS products, uh, we have a brand new product manager who is not new to the company, but new to the role, Matthew Paquette. He's been with Humanware for a number of years in the tech support role, but now he is the product manager on the Victor Reader and GPS lines. So I work closely with him as well, um, you know, in, in just trying to provide that user story. So I'm in a unique role um, as a blind person myself. I can bring a lot to it, both from a user standpoint as well as a trainer. Um, and also I do a lot of these things myself in terms of conference presentations, travel, uh, workshops. So it's, it's a unique role and I'm very lucky to be here. And uh, it's, it's kind of every day is different. So there's a lot going on. Now, when was the last time you came to Texas to do one of these workshops? I was in Texas in Houston on April 29th and 30th. Now that was, it had been about two years prior, but for over two, almost two and a half years, I, I wasn't moving around yeah. with COVID and the pandemic. Uh, prior to that, I was doing 43 weeks a year on the road. 
2016, 17, 18, 19, all the way until CSUN of 2020. I was everywhere. So nothing. And then fortunately, I was in Texas, uh, in Austin, and then doing a couple of workshops in Houston at the very tail end of April. So I haven't been back, but we have been present. Uh, Joel was just in, in Texas last week doing workshops and things. And I know Rachel will be coming in September. So we try to um, kind of float through Texas. And we know it's a massive place. Uh, we try to float through I'd say once every six to eight weeks. We also have a rep based in Austin, and we have a dealer in Texas, um, okay. which is Crystal Vision. Oh, right, 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 right. I've heard you speak a few times about your childhood when you've been presenting. Um, do you want to share anything about your K-12 journey or maybe talk about your TVI and what they had to put up with? <laughs> Absolutely. So I was, uh, I'm from Chicago. I'm from the, the suburbs of Chicago, so a very, very large metro area. So I was extremely fortunate as a, as a kiddo because the resources uh, that are available in a, in a large area can, you know, can be a lot broader. Uh, I went to a, I was in a resource room, uh, my K-12 sort of all the way through, I was in a resource room. So I was out of district, but I was in a, in a you know, in, in the mainstream sort of classes. Uh, but I did have a, they kind of pulled the kiddos from different surrounding districts into one spot. Uh, kind of as a gathering point, and then would have a resource room, and they would have multiple TVIs, O&M, speech, OT, PT, all of that on on staff. Um, I, you know, I, I was very fortunate because I was able to stay in the same district, um, made a lot of friends. You know, by the time I got to middle school and whatnot, who I who I still have to this day, but it, it wasn't. It was a little tough because I was out of district. They were not friends I had mm. necessarily in my neighborhood. Um, but as far as school went. You know, it, it, it was be, because I was at that type of program, I had access to a, a lot of technology. Um, I had access to a lot of, you know, materials. Everything was, was kind of there and, and was able to be provided almost in real time, uh, which, which was very good. And then I was driven very much by my school life continuing at home. And what I mean by that is my, my parents uh, played an active role in making sure that what was being taught or worked on at school uh, was also being worked on at home. So from the social skills standpoint, uh, from a, you know, expectation standpoint, um, I was, I was very fortunate. And I, and I know you've heard me present my, my father is from the former Yugoslavia. Uh, he is very foreign and where my dad is from blind people don't do much. It's there. We, you know, we, I, I've been there many times and as a blind person, the expectations are pretty low. Um, you're going to be sitting at home. You will probably be taken care of your entire life. You might know how to get around the village or, or you might get out a little bit, but you're always going to be sort of uh, ostracized in some way. So when my mom um, realized this, my mom is from Michigan. My mom sounds like Sarah Palin. She's about as Midwestern as you can get. Uh, she was like, no, 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 no. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to do things this way. And we're really going to have these expectations. And she was very adamant. Um, and my dad ended up coming full circle and was also very adamant about exposing me to all sorts of life experiences. Um, everything from cleaning the gutters to working on cars, um, to being expected to clean the cat box, empty the dishwasher. You know, those home pieces were really an extension of what was being worked on at school with our, developing our travel skills, um, working on reading and writing, working on verbal and written communication and, um, you know, working on the, the actual academic side. I was very fortunate that it did carry over to my home life. And so 
there always was this sort of, and it, it annoyed me to no end. I mean, it was not <laughs> something I was a fan of. I didn't want this full circle. What is being talked about at school carries over to home and vice versa. Um, but there was this marriage that was really nice because there, there wasn't a, you know, any sort of disagreements there. Not that there wasn't push and pull. I think there's always parents want something for their children that the school may want something different or a teacher may want something different. But I think there was this work to this. It takes a village and it took a village. Um, and folks were able to work together with my parents and, and my parents were able to work together as well to promote, you know, this consistent, um, teaching. Everything was a, was a learning experience. And I was able to kind of capitalize on that, fortunately. Um, and I've been able to live on my own the last 15 years. <laughs> yeah. I remember you told a story about a weekend that your mom went on strike and wouldn't do anything for oh, you. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. So my mom absolutely went on strike. She uh, uh, she told this story uh, when we presented together uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at an event back earlier this summer. Basically, what uh, one of my jobs, if you will, was to put away my laundry. It was expected. Here's your laundry basket. My sister did the laundry and I had to put it away. Uh, and so the laundry basket goes into my room. Uh, it was a Friday evening. I said, okay, I'll put this away. And I did, I put it away. Well, my mom came in the next day and what she realized is by putting it away, I just put it away. Like I put the whole basket in the closet. I didn't actually put the clothes away. I put the basket out of sight away. Right. Right. So she, she found the basket and was just not having it and said, you know what? I am on strike. Uh, you, you won't, you know, you need to make your own food. You are going to, if you want to go somewhere, you're going to have to find your own way to get there and back and not, you know, I'm not doing anything for you this weekend. I'll be here. You know, it's not like, uh, this isn't uh, some neglection here. You know, you're not getting neglected. You're, you're, I'll be, I'm here, but I will do nothing for you. And that we tell that story a lot now. And, and I remember I wanted so badly to go to this German and, and I was, I was probably eighth grade, maybe ninth grade. I wanted to go eat schnitzel or have, it was like October. It was fall. I wanted to go to Oktoberfest. And uh, I really, really wanted to go hear the music and eat the food. And I was not able to go because my mom was on strike because I did not put my clothes away. Uh, that's how, that's how she rolls. But, uh, yeah, she, she absolutely went on strike and I ate a lot of PBJ. And I remember, uh, the other thing I would do that weekend is I just made a lot of tuna, tuna fish sandwiches because I knew how to do that. So that was my savior. So it was a little taste of living independently, right? It was, it was like being, uh, 20, but I was, you know, 13 or whatever, awesome. you know, I, I was yeah living on, uh, three cans and, uh, some, some soup in the microwave. Little did I know, little did I know. <laughs> well, talk about your, uh, career path a little bit. How did you end up at Humanware? I grew up in the suburbs and I knew there was no place for me in the suburbs. I could not, my autonomy wasn't really going to be maximized as it would in the city. So as a result, I went to the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I majored in Russian. And you might say, wow, that's random. And it was. It was very random. Uh, I knew the, you know, the Serbian and kind of that, that Slavic language. My father's from Bosnia. I knew that sort of element of, of the you know, Slavic language. I can do Russian. Well, Russian didn't necessarily pan out either. So as uh, with many of us, when we go to college, mm -hmm. we don't ever you know, necessarily finish with where we started. I ended up going into and being, I was a history major. I graduated with a history degree, but while I was in college, I needed a job. And I found a, a working uh, position at a call center as an intern at the Chicago Lighthouse for the Blind. And I worked various call center jobs through college 
And while I was doing that, I was always using the technology. I was always using these things and, and I found them fun. I was always a tinkerer. Um, I had no problem learning technology and showing others how to use it. I'd worked as a teacher's aide as well. I'd worked as a mentor for blind kiddos around Chicago in high school. Um, we would cook, we would clean, we would just hang out, socialize, work on social skills, um, to try to get over blindisms and things. And so I, I kind of always had that in the back of my mind, never really did anything with it. But once I worked at the lighthouse, an opportunity arose right as I was graduating from college to go into the assistive technology department and to be, uh, to help them pr conduct evaluations for the state. And I was able to have a certification and was able to, to kind of get that going. So I started working in, um, in, in that department and I was very quickly just kind of always in demand. They wanted me to do lots of presentations. Um, I've always been a, a, a fan of public speaking. I've never shied away from it. I enjoy it. I love people. I really do. I love to listen and to talk with others. So that was always nice working with older people who were newer to vision loss. And I realized I, I really like this. This is something I'm into, but I had no idea of how to break into a career in it. Um, it was just something I was doing and it, it did develop into a full-time position, but where my, my, uh, my luck came and a big break was my two bosses ago at this point, but, uh, Dominic Gagliano, who was with Humanware for many, many years, kind of pulled me out of the Chicago lighthouse and said, can you come help us out, Humanware, uh, at a, a, a convention in Dallas, Texas? So my very first Humanware gig was a Texas connection. Hmm. You know, I went to Dallas uh, and in 2015, I believe it was, was an ACB and I was offered a job uh, on the spot. And I said, this is awesome. You know, I, I'm going to do this. There was a lot of travel. Little did I know. Uh, how much travel that would be. It was about 85% of the time, which was a wonderful development experience for me. I learned so much. Oh, do I have, a, do I have stories <laughs> of my bumbles and fumbles on the road um, and the things I've learned. But, you know, I said, this is a great opportunity. And so I, I took that job and just excelled. I really enjoyed uh, being able to, to work with others. I was able to use my written communication kind of skill set that I developed um, a lot of presenting, and then was able to grow. I was then the brand ambassador of Blindness Products for a number of years, um, and now I'm the director of strategic partnerships. So there have been these stepping stones, and I'm I'm not done. Um, every day I'm learning something new. I'm always trying to push the envelope and put get myself out of my comfort zone, um, doing a little bit more, you know, of this international stuff where it is a very different world. The market is very different. The the, the needs are very different, and how we develop products is very very different. And it's sometimes not realized by those of us who kind of just live in this country and look at things through a North American lens. Now, where is Humanware based out of anywhere, or are you guys just everywhere now? Humanware has two offices. Um, well, two, two offices in North America. The company itself, and it, it is a long and winding road. It, it actually stems, as many AT companies do, uh, Humanware is a, a result of various mergers over the years that go yeah. back to the late 80s. Um, but Humanware today is based in a town that is a, about midpoint between Montreal and Quebec City called mm -hmm. Drummondville. Hmm. And Drummondville is in Quebec, um, and that is where our, most of our, our, our offices are for you know, the, the CEO and, and, and that sort of thing. We also, though, our warehouse and the manufacturing side, much of that is done in Longueuil, which is just outside of Montreal. Hmm. That's where our developers work, the R&D. So we do have multiple facilities there. We have offices in the U.K., 
We have office in Europe, and we also have, have uh, established presence in Australia. So there are there are really three main humanware divisions, but we do sell product in all continents. I didn't realize you you had such an international footprint. I mean, I knew about Canada, but um, I didn't know how widespread you all were. Yeah, so a lot of what we've been, you know, we, we have had some major um, contracts and things with countries, you know, Saudi Arabia. Um, we have a very large, very successful dealer network throughout uh, the Middle East and, and into, you know, South Africa. Um, at it, you know, there's, there's also a very large dealer network in Europe. Um, and, you know, we, we do. We, our products are localized in dozens of languages. We're always adding new localizations. We also, you know, have built different products in different regions. We do Braille products for emerging markets that are very affordable, low-cost Braille products, uh, where we work with min- ministries of education, for instance, to put Braille in the hands of all blind people in that particular country. We have multiple examples of working with those types of, of deals um, and trying to, to provide Braille in mass quantity. Here, it's similar in a sense. I mean, if you look at what NLS is doing, we're a partner of NLS in providing the e-reader. Um, and that is a free Braille display that is offered by the National Library Service to every single patron. Uh, Humanware builds that display. There are two. We build one of them. Um, and, and it's been extremely successful. So even in this country, you can get a Braille display if you're an NLS patron. And Humanware is, is, is a partner and plays a role in that. So, you know, we, we do a lot more than just getting a product into a, an educational student's hands or into somebody, you know, who's retired and using a Victor Reader stream mm-hmm. or somebody who wants to, to use a low vision device to magnify a knitting pattern or, or read a book. It goes a lot. It, it does go a lot deeper than that when you get into the institutional and sort of government level sales and, and, and product uh, placement and distribution. Assistive technology, whether it is for somebody who is blind, somebody who is cognitively impaired, somebody who is, is you know, is deaf. Um, any sort of disabilities, the, the, the equipment is extremely expensive. We yeah. know that. There are always ways um, in, in various places where this stuff, you know, can be subsidized. And we certainly, you know, with this NLS opportunity, um, the NLS e-reader program, it is currently available, I believe, in 21 states. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it, again, if you're a patron, you can request a free Braille display to access the NLS Braille catalog, as well as a Braille display that works that, that will, you know, it, it also works with your computer, um, with JAWS or NVDA or with voiceover on your iPhone. So it is a, it is a fully functioning Braille display uh, that, will, that will be provided free of charge from the National Library Service if your state is participating. And I do not know the status of Texas. Yeah. I do not believe it is participating at this time. So what do you think we'll see in the near future in relation to AT for blind and low vision users or what products are on the horizon or should be? I think there's no secret that there are so a couple of pieces. Uh, We'll we'll kind of break it into three categories, if you will. The first would be low vision. I think from a low vision standpoint, we will see major advancements in wearable technology. Mm. Right now, wearables they're good, but there's certainly is this kind of uh, augmented reality piece to them where sometimes it can be a little bit tough because you're, you know, you're, they're very good when you're stationary, but as soon as you start moving around, the wearables have a very hard, you just get really dizzy. And it's, yeah. uh, it's, it can be very, very, you know, not really perfected for that. So I think we'll see some major advancements in wearable technology that is, that is portable. And not portable in that you can move it from place to place, but portable in that it, it goes with you as you move mm-hmm. um, it's, and it's functional as you're moving through your environment. Mm-hmm. I think we'll really start to see some of that. From a 
from a blindness perspective, we can again break it down into two products. The first being Braille. I think uh, multi-line Braille is coming. It is very close. It's already here in, 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 in some aspects. We've had multi-line Braille products for a long time, but now we have a number of them on the market, and there will only be more. Um, you may have heard of the project that ourselves, Humanware, and the American Printing House for the Blind are working on, the, the DTD, which is the Dynamic Tactile Display. Yep. Humanware and APH are equal investors on this. It is a multi-line Braille display that will also be capable of producing Braille tactile graphics so this is something again this this new you know it is meant to serve as a a, a far easier way to, to produce a textbook for instance yeah um and so you know we're, we're look really looking at pushing the envelope in that regard not just about okay i have three lines of braille but what can you do if you have 10 lines of braille and you can also show and manipulate or navigate tactile graphics well you can actually at that point begin to really look at the whole infrastructure changing and being able to supply textbooks or uh, all sorts of information in museums or, or libraries or all these places where Braille is not present could be present because the delivery method is so much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will see multi-line Braille. Uh, we will see a lot of advancements there. I think we'll also, and which is typical, just things will get faster, things will get smaller. Um, that's good. But I think we need to, you know, we need to really be thinking outside the box you can only make a, you know, an iPhone or a, or a tablet or a Braille device so fast or so thin before you're really not, what are you doing to, to maximize that device's productivity when you put it in somebody's hands? And so, you know, I think modular products will also be a thing. I think you'll have, a, you'll, there will be a day where you can buy a product and it might be 20 cells and then maybe it could be 30 tomorrow because you attach something to it or 10 mm. the next day because you, you strip it down and you just want to throw it in your, in your pocket or in your purse. So I think we will see modular uh, Braille products. The, the other thing I think um, from just an assistant standpoint, we all know our houses have these assistants everywhere. I think we'll continue to see devices um, becoming smarter uh, where we will have artificial intelligence that can help with travel. You know, where is that door? What, what is the light? You know, am I at the right address? Uh, these things are already coming. They're already here. But it, that stuff will only get smarter. Um, you know, travel aids, indoor navigation. Some of these pieces will 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 certainly see some product development there um, to make our lives easier as we as we move around. With not not from a braille standpoint, but really from accessing information in our environments, reading signs, um, identifying layouts in buildings, identifying paths, obstacles. You know, detection of of that sort of thing. You know, I, I was walking with my daughter last week. Um, and there was a construction site that I didn't know about. And of course, my cane finds it. But, you know, I tried to go to the other side of the street and there was the construction site on that side, too. So I, I had to actually go around the block. Now, if there were technologies to say there's a construction site here on both sides of the street, you know, you're not going to get around this uh, or just different ways of interpreting your environment. It would have saved me 20 minutes of Peter exploring time. So, you know, I, I think we'll start to see some of those things. So I can just think all the things that you mentioned would be such game changers for, you know, our students and really anybody um, using assistive technology. We want things to be game changers, if you will. We want we want to push the envelope. But I think it it's all about trying to address realistic needs. You know, we, we do get approached by a lot of products that come out that try to solve a problem that we don't we don't have. So mm. someone will invent a and I'm not picking on anyone here, but someone will invent, let's say, a, a piece of clothing you can wear that will, 
I don't know, attempt to, you know, control an appliance or something. And it will be a great concept, but when you try to scale it or when you try to, you know, make it work or, or put it to, to kind of put the rubber to the road, it doesn't perform or it, it helps a very small um, segment of the, of, of the population. Mm-hmm. So when we're, when we're building these products, when we're looking at these pieces, it's really, you know, we need to think big and then certainly develop products that can address uh, the, the needs of blind people or, or people with various levels of vision loss across the board, um, whether it's regardless of age level, regardless of ability, it's just, it, it can be really, really tough to kind of get that right. And we don't have a lot of room for failure. Um, if a product doesn't do well, we're, we're a very small outfit. We don't have, we, we can't just have products. We can't just throw things at the wall and hope they stick. Yeah. It's something we can't do. Right. Right. Do you guys have a, um, like, I, I'm assuming you have a development team that comes up with these ideas and gets the ball rolling or how does that work? We have a, a large amount of developers who are always on varying projects. We have resources that get put on different projects. What they do, um, you know, in, in the, it's amazing when you go because when they develop a Braille product, for instance, they will take the Braille cells that we're using on the particular product and they will put it through not just some testing, right? We, they will check it in two degrees or 140 degrees. They will do 400,000 cell rotations on it. They will do, you know, varying types of drop tests. I, I've been there when they throw things down the metal stairs. Um <laughs> You know, doing some of the things we don't think about, especially from a temperature standpoint, you know, mm-hmm. your products have to be able to function in, in wide ranging temperatures because when in, we all know this, you, you put a product in the cupboard at the end of school in May, June, what happens to that in that unconditioned building yeah. until you reopen it in September? Um, a lot, you know, and, and how are your lubricants going to function? How are your cells going to function? How are your devices going to withstand the wear and tear? So, that is one piece. The other piece is the labs where you do have, you know, all types of testing going on with, you know, what is it with this wearable? How do these cameras function? Somebody needs to test all of this stuff in the, in real life situations. Um, so the R and D they're always busy and it's not just R and D. There's a very large QA department a QC department. So quality mm-hmm. control, quality insurance, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the localization piece, we have a large network of people who help us with localizing devices. There, there is so much that goes into finally getting these products out. And then again, it's, then it becomes an issue of getting the thing molded, um, getting the right colors, that stuff the, the manufacturing is a very messy, messy, yeah. uh, there's so many moving parts. It's, it's really, really tough, but a huge team up in Canada who does put together and, and works on all these projects. And we have some very, we have some long-term folks who've been with us a long time were awesome developers. Well, I know we are all very appreciative of the work Humanware does and the products you all bring to our field. That's for sure. Now, before I let you go to your next international meeting, it makes you sound like you're an international spy. Maybe you are. I know. Well, you never know. <laughs> um, do you have any advice that you could share with our students who are maybe navigating college, school, or careers? We hear every day. As, as kiddos, as students, as, you know, our parents tell us, all, our, our teachers, everyone, they talk about how hard it is for us to find employment. Mm-hmm. And, and it's true. It's very difficult. Um, we're, we're always going to be, you know, facing that struggle. Um, what, I, what I always tell people, and there's two things. Number one, always, always work on 
being as organized as humanly possible, where you're notoriously very poor at organization. So if we're able to, because, and, it's, and it's not that we're usually really good at it because we do it all in our heads. We can organize information in our heads flawlessly. We're very good at that um, until we're not. We start forgetting things, you know, so the organization skills are very important. I would be nowhere if I was not organized. I could not go from, you know, seven or eight cities in six days without being extremely organized. Um, the other thing I, I tell people is, you know, work on and develop good written communication skills. Mm. We, we oftentimes have awesome, very good verbal communication skills because we talk and listen so much, but we don't read and write so much. Um, we're, we need to develop good spelling and writing skills. Even if our jobs, like my job, requires a lot of back and forth written communication, also writing up a lot of guides. I need to be able to tell someone what I know. Sometimes I can't just, I can't put their hands on it and show them. I need to write up step-by-step instructions. And, and so much of what we do is built around that. So your written communication, and it, even if it might not be applicable or doesn't apply to the job you think you want to do, it can really, really help you in, in coming across, um, you know, as, as, as someone who's confident, who can get that job, who can nail it down. And I think also it gives you the confidence, you know, you're going to format a a nice looking resume. You're going to be able to build um, relationships and, you know, and and not look silly because you misspelled the person's name you're emailing because you didn't read it in Braille or or check to make sure, you know, that, that you were doing that. So written communication skills are extremely important. And, you know, between being organized and getting those good written communication skills, that's something anybody can, can master kind of work on. It's not like, uh, it's, 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 it's not above anyone to focus on those pieces. I think the other thing I would say, and it kind of falls into organizational skills is try, really try to work on or manage, you know, work on your time management, your multitasking skills. So much of what we do, what I do with a screen reader in one ear and a phone in the other ear or, you know, reading a Braille display at the same time, those sorts of things can be very hard to, to wrap your head around. Um, fortunately, we don't have visual distraction, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. but we certainly have a lot of auditory distraction. And so, you know, we, we do, I, I would, I just, I think that piece comes in huge. I wasn't ready for the time management piece and organization piece that I really needed in college. Fortunately, I was able to adapt quickly, but I was definitely not as prepared as I should have been. So it, you know, I think just developing those skills, regardless of whether you want to be a, you know, a massage therapist or a chemist or um, somebody who's a musician or working at the UN um, or just working on cars, you know, those, that organization piece, written communication and, and kind of working on your time management and multitasking will really help you just gain the confidence because once you figure out what you want to do, you'll be far more prepared to do it um, because you'll have those skills kind of behind you. I, that's kind of kind of where I always come back to. I mean, it, so it's nothing specific to learn your technology or learn this and learn that. I, I think even certifications, you know, it, it just depends on what you want. They can be over overblown, um, but if you have those good foundational skills, you you will be able to to apply them. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530.
I always enjoy chatting with Peter on and off the air. Be sure to check out Humanware and the future of assistive technology. Every day seems to bring a new advancement. From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.